Section six of a second Rubiat Miscellany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The versions of H. G. Keane. The real Kayam. In Macmillan's magazine for November eighteen eighty seven, volume fifty seven, page twenty seven, Mr. H. G. Keane, a retired East Indiaman familiar with Persian had an article entitled Omar Khayyam, in which he included a number of original versions, not with the intention, he says, of shocking the admirers of Mr. Fitzgerald by an attempt to compete with his poetical treatment, but offered as illustrative of the real Khayyam in his disjointed manner. He gives Fitzgerald due credit, but while he calls his quatrains as unquestionably among the fine things in modern English verse, he avers that they give no accurate representations of the original in any of their versions, as indeed the variations of successive editions do themselves tend to show. Omar, he continues, is no more coherent than Marshall, as anyone will see who looks into Mr. Winfield's version in Trubner's series. Here is the epigram of a scoffer, there the ejaculation of a pious inquirer, the carol of the wine-bibber is followed by a stanza of tender love. In Fitzgerald, on the other hand, we are not sure whether we are reminded most of Horace or of Ecclesiastes. Of the flighty Persian freethinker, eclectic and unsystematic, we see little or nothing. After giving an historical explanation of the phenomenon of this unparalleled figure in the usually conventional literature of the East, he proceeds to show from his rubiat what manner of man Omar was. An unparalleled figure. We must picture to ourselves the poet in his garden, looking out on the well-watered valley below Meshed, with vines and fruit plots around, and a bright sky overhead, assuaged by shadowy plane trees, while streams lapsed softly through the meadow grass. It was a retreat, yet with loopholes, for the neighbourhood of the town afforded some choice of society. Omar's hospitality was open to pleasant persons of both sexes, to all, indeed, but zealots. He was not one to confuse belief with faith. Heterodoxy is as bad in his eyes as orthodoxy. You may do what you will if you will be cheerful and undogmatic. He is the slave of freedom. To drink and revel and laugh is all my art. To smile at faith and unfaith, my faith's part. I asked the bride what gift would win her love. She answered, Give me but a cheerful heart. That he is ambitious, in the vulgar sense of sighing for the perishable advantages of wealth and station, no one can believe. He may desire to influence his fellow creatures, but it is as a friend rather than as a master. For personal comfort, he looks not to luxury, but to love, not to the blind assurance of the bigot, but to the confidence of innocence and goodness. If in your heart the light of love you plant, whether the mosque or synagogue you haunt, if in love's court its name be registered, hell it will fear not, heaven it will not want. His Questioning It has been thought that Khayyam was a Sufi, and only used the language of pleasure as a symbol for pantheistic aspiration. But he can be outspoken, and such questions as the following are neither equivocal nor ambiguous. 
This is the time for roses and repose, beside the stream that through the garden flows. A friend or two, a lady, rosy-cheeked, with wine, and none to hear the clergy prose. Unless girls pour the wine, the wine is naught, without the music of the flute is naught. Look as I may into the things of life, mirth is the only good, the rest is naught. The red wine in a festal cup is sweet, with sound of lute and dulcimer is sweet. A saint, to whom the wine-cup is not known, he too, a thousand miles from us, is sweet. Not but what he has his pious hours, for to nothing but true piety can we ascribe such thoughts as these. Thou hast no way to enter the dark court, for not to mortals does it yield resort. There is no rest but on the lap of earth. Woe, that its riddle is so far from short. Ah, Brand, ah, Brand, if all that thou canst earn be but to help the fires of hell to burn, why wilt thou cry, Have mercy, Lord, on me? Is it from such as thee that he will learn? Of thy Creator's mercy do not hold doubt, though thy crimes be great and manifold. Nor think that, if thou die in sin to-day, he from thy bones his mercy will withhold. His Dignified Attitude Yet, convinced as he is of the need of pardon, and not always sure, in his human diffidence, that his Lord is anything but a magnified Sultan, who exercises man with willful and arbitrary caprice, he preserves his dignity in the face of the appalling possibility. Although God's service has not been my care, nor for his coming was my heart made fair, I still have hoped to find the mercy seat, because I never wearied him with prayer. Am I a rebel? Then his power is, where? Is my heart dark? His light and glory, where? Doth he give heaven for our obedience? Tis due, but then his loving kindness, where? These speculations bring him to the old conclusion. Although my sins have left me faint and fell, one hope I keep, the heathen have it as well. In dying may I clasp my girl and glass, what else to me were paradise or hell? If I drink wine, it is not for delight, nor unto holiness to do despite. I do it to breathe a little, free from self, no other cause would make me drink all night. They say that Tophet from of old was planned, but that's what I could never understand. If there were hell for those who drink, then heaven would be no fuller than one's hollow hand. With wine and music, if our lives have glee, if grass beside the running brook wave free, better than this esteemed no quenched hell, this is thy heaven, if heaven indeed there be. Enjoy the passing moment. He is not sure whether, even on this side of the grave, perfect bliss is to be had, and in such uncertainty it would be folly to strive. But he is quite sure of the wisdom of savouring to the utmost the passing moment, and, like Horace, he makes the precariousness of joy a reason for enjoyment. Since life flies fast, what's bitter and what's sweet? When death draws near, what matter field or street? Drink wine. For after thee and me, the moon her alternating course will oft repeat.
I dreamed of an old man who said, and frowned, The rose of bliss in sleep was never found. Why, then, anticipate the work of death? Drink, rather, sleep awaits thee in the ground. Ah, comrades, strengthen me with cups of wine, Until my faded cheeks like rubies shine, And bathe me in it after I am dead, And weave my shroud with tendrils of the vine. Sweet Companionship But these contemplations, these delights, could not always be taken, or did not always suffice. Posprandia Kalihoi. Like his European prototypes, the Persian philosopher found woman essential to his scheme. His paradise must never want an Eve with whom he could share alike his joys and his troubles. Clouds come and sink upon the grass in rain. Let wine's red roses make our moments fain, and let the verdure please our eyes to-day ere grass from our dust shall give joy again. Sweetheart, if time a cloud on thee have flung, to think the breath must leave thee, now so young, sit here, upon the grass, a day or two, while yet no grass from thy dust shall have sprung. Long before thee and me were night and morn, for some great end the sky is round us borne. Upon this dust, ah, step with careful foot, some beauty's eyeball here may lie forlorn. This cup once loved, like me, a lovely girl, And sighed, entangled in a scented curl. This handle that you see upon its neck Once wound itself about a neck of pearl. It is to be feared that, like Anacreon, The Eastern poet found that, as old age drew on, The ladies turned to younger loves. Ah, that the raw should have the finished cake, The immature the ripest produce take, And eyes that make the heart of man to beat Shine only for the boys and eunuchs' sake. Vague but trustful hope. But the things of fate approach. No epicurism can do much To strip necessity of its stern aspect. Sin is sin, and the soul, In the solitude of the dark valley, turns to the inevitable with vague but trustful hope. His mercy being gained, what need we fear? His script being full, no journey makes me fear. If by his clemency my face be white, in no degree the black book will I fear. I ward in vain with nature, what's the cure? I suffer for mine actions, what's the cure? I know God's mercy covers all my sin, for shame that he has seen it. What's the cure? Yet even here science brings a message that is not unconsoling. He may pass as an individual, but the moon will shine on others, and the grass be fair and odorous, and the very body that has known so much joy, when it was his, will contribute to other joys hereafter. Is it not a shame, because on every side thy curious eyes are circumscribed and tied, pent in this dark and temporary cell, in its poor bounds, contented to abide? O tent-maker, that frame is but a tent, Thy soul the king, to realms of nothing bent, And slaves shall strike the tent for a fresh use, When the king rises, and his night is spent. Here we come upon a stanza, Beautifully rendered by Fitzgerald. Speaking of the body, 
he makes the poet say or is it but a tent where rests anon a sultan to his kingdom journeying on and which the swarthy chamberlain shall strike then when the monarch rises to be gone slight changes make great differences the difference from the original is verbally but slight but it will be observed to seriously alter the significance Kayam's play on his name tent-maker is sacrificed so is the mockery of the soul's journey to an unreal kingdom the word chamberlain is an inadequate substitute for the original farash which indicates a class of slave appointed in the east for such duties and to which the poet contemptuously likens death a sample of fitzgerald's manner of paraphrase may be interesting the two metrical stanzas are his the prose that follows gives the literal english of the original o thou who didst with pitfall and with gin beset the road i was to wander in thou wilt not with predestination round enmesh me and impute my fall to sin o thou who man of basest clay didst make and who with eden didst devise the snake for all the sin with which the face of man is blackened man's forgiveness give and take in my way-going thou hast laid the snare in many a place thou sayest i slay thee if i make the fault therein the world is not free from thy command a tittle i do thy command and thou callest me sinner o thou of the sanctity of whose nature knowledge is not and art indifferent both to our obedience and sin i am drunk with sin but sober with hope in that my hope is in thy great mercy omar's philanthropy Kayam mocks at circumstances death is a slave even life saving so far as it is a scene of calm enjoyment is a mere bubble the noise of the franks in syria is deadened by distance the crimes of hassan sabah the toils of nizam ul mulk are ignored while the poet surprises the secrets of nature observing her economies of matter and her recklessness of man but in regard to these hapless contemporaries to whom the stern stepmother shows so little pity he infers the duty of help urging the indulgence of a brother orphan do thou beware no human heart to wring let no one feel thine anger hotly sting wouldst thou enjoy perpetual happiness know how to suffer cause no suffering here the veil shall fall and our last glimpse of the poet show him in a posture of pity he was summoned to merv and employed in the reformer of the calendar and he died a natural death about eleven twenty three at naishapur his old age being untroubled and his life unabridged more than this an oriental of that time could not hope from fate the rest of his happiness must come from within as we will hope it did one of his disciples tells us that omar said in his old age I would be buried in such a place that the north wind may scatter roses on it after the poet's death the disciple visiting the grave found that it was beneath a garden wall and the fruit trees reached their boughs over and dropped their blossoms over his tomb so that it was almost hidden the scriptural worth of the quatrains one of the curious features of Kayam's life and labor is the fact of such heterodox and seemingly unprofitable matter surviving with no aid from the printing press through the havoc of seven stormy centuries 
of this we may be sure that no nation preserves a work of literary art unless it has endeared itself to many minds and found an echo in the popular feeling not only have persia and Khorasan been scourged since then with fire and sword in which the frail life of manuscripts must have been in constant danger but the outspoken heterodoxy of the rubaiyat must have rendered them especially liable to the hostile pursuit of the moslem church that they have trifles as we may think them been preserved amid all these dangers to furnish themes of enjoyment and of discussion in a state of society so unlike that in which they were born and in which they lived so long raises them to a position of almost scriptural dignity and at last we behold them inspiring modern artists in the busiest centres of western life it was not at all likely that in their original amorphous state they would have pleased the generality of english readers mr winfield has prefixed to his translation this somewhat disparaging motto from mr arnold a mind not wholly clear nor wholly blind too keen to rest too weak to find fitzgerald's version and the original modern europeans do not care to be troubled with reading that travails sore and brings forth wind for the use of such it is more than probable that fitzgerald's genius and skill have raised the only acceptable structure nevertheless a sympathetic student of human history may be willing to cast a glance at the remote original too far away in place and time too bare and open for permanent sojourn a grotesque nook abounding in quaint arabesque and coloured fretwork yet none the less a shrine of undogmatic grace and harmlessness and peace end of section